Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. When Diplomacy Fails presents The July Crisis Anniversary Project A day-by-day account of the events that occurred 100 years ago Hoyos Mission. Today is the 5th of July 2014, and around this time 100 years ago, occurred the following events. Count Alexander Hoyos was Chief of Staff for the Foreign Ministry. He answered directly to Leopold von Berchtold, Austria's Foreign Minister, and he had the advantage of being able to speak off the record if needs be. Thus, when on Wednesday the 1st of July, a German journalist named Victor Naumann turned up at the Ballplatz, Austria's governmental offices, and asked to speak with Hoyos, it made a bit of sense. By speaking with Hoyos, Naumann could perhaps gather what Austria really thought about the whole assassination business, and whether they planned on attacking Serbia in retaliation or not. Under the cloak of public diplomacy, it was hard for Germany to tell exactly how far Austria was willing to go. We saw last time that a diplomatic chain linking back to Berlin and containing Emperor Franz Josef's pleas to the German ambassador to understand Austria's position were in place. But the slowing of the investigation and the lack of speed involved in the Austrian response did a lot to dampen German confidence in their ally. So an indirect line was needed, hence Nauen's visit. As far as Austria-Hungary was concerned, Germany was just as uncertain an issue. The key factor of acquiring German support for any action they did take seemed to be a cause for great concern in Vienna, and the post-Sarajevo talks had not provided Austria with the clear guarantee that they wanted. When Hoyos and Naumann started talking then, it did not take long for both to realise that they shared common ground. 
Naumann was well liked and connected in Berlin. Though his occupation of journalist may have inferred otherwise, he had strong links to the German Foreign Office and regularly was updated with military staff plans. Naumann told Hoyos of his concern about the Russian army's great program, which would expand the Russian army's strike capabilities and further confound the central powers of strategic planning. Naumann continued that an idea of a preventative war against Russia before this military restructuring of Russian armed forces was complete was gaining ground in the Wilhelmstrasse, or German government. In addition, though Britain had definitively won the naval race, it was for that reason that Naumann felt confident of an Anglo-German rapprochement which would neutralise the possibility of British intervention. This had in fact been the pet project of the German Chancellor Bethmann Hallwig, who doubled as the country's foreign minister. Such facts were used to shore up Austrian confidence, and it worked. It persuaded Hoyos that the time had come to strategically let slip to Naumann that he approved of German war readiness, for the fact that it would prove useful in the event of a war against Serbia. Hoyos was then greeted with the response that such a war against Serbia was exactly what the German High Command had wanted Austria to undertake. Hoyos quoted Naumann as saying in his later report that a war against Serbia was exactly what he was going to suggest to me, since, after the Sarajevo murder, it was a question of life or death for the monarchy not to leave the crime unpunished, but to annihilate Serbia. For Germany, such a course would be the touchstone of whether Russia meant war or not. These two lesser diplomats, casually trading critically classified information as though among friends at a bar, proved to be the exact style of negotiation that the situation needed. Hoyos had hoped for a declaration of support from Germany at best, but instead he had been given a display of German preparation and saw exactly what they had really thought of the situation. If he managed to inform Berchtold of what Naumann said, then surely a conversation would be enough to persuade him, and then perhaps Stefan Tisa, the resilient Hungarian minister-president. But did Naumann really speak for Germany? In the past, the German Kaiser, Wilhelm II, had seemed content to advocate a policy of non-intervention in the Balkans. Would he change course now? Naumann believed that the Kaiser could be brought around to the idea of war, because if he were cornered at Franz Ferdinand's funeral on July the 3rd, two days away from their conversation, the atmosphere and grief of Wilhelm could push him towards rash action. If, at the present moment... Naumann told Hoyos, when Kaiser Wilhelm is horrified at the Sarajevo murder, he is spoken to in the right way, he will give us all assurances, and this time go to the length of war, because he perceives the dangers for the monarchical principle. Thus the best chance Austria had for gleaming German support was to confront their sovereign while memory of the murder was still fresh. Hoyos said his goodbyes with Naumann, and he rushed to tell Berchtold what the German representative had said. The news gave Berchtold the hope that Stefan Tisa, perhaps the greatest obstacle to decisive Austrian action, could be persuaded that decisive Austrian action was not just what was needed, but it was approved by Germany. The next day, on Thursday the 2nd of July, Berchtold was given more good news. The assassins were finally starting to reveal information about themselves, and consequently evidence may soon be brought to light about Serbian compliance. Gavrilo Princip, having endured beatings from the enraged citizens and a long interrogation under comfortable Habsburg confinement, began to reveal information at last on the night of the 1st of July. At first he had claimed to have acted alone, and amusingly claimed that both he and his colleague that had thrown the initial bomb had acted alone, 
and only coincidentally had attempted their move on the same day. Under further scrutiny, Princep broke when he was promised that innocence would not be fingered in the investigation, and Princep appears to have hoped that by trying to tie up loose ends for Austria, the actions of Sarajevo would not be traced back to Belgrade. When Princep finally gave up the act, he did so by exposing his fellow colleagues and asked if he could explain to them in person why he was exposing their compliance. Of the seven assassins present on the 28th of June, two had gotten away, but Princep and the bomb thrower, as well as the primary recruiter for the Black Hand in Bosnia, and two other men had been captured. Thus, a police dragnet began to ensnare the remaining agents and their families, and so to spare further arrests, Gavrilo confessed. By talking to his colleagues in person and persuading them to stick to the same story, he hoped to give the impression that Serbia had not been compliant. Yet it was not rocket science to track down the actions of the assassins back to Berlin, an exercise made easier by the fact that someone had to have slipped them across the Austro-Serb border. From that point, it was a matter of identifying any within Serb society who could have authority within that border region. It was thus appearing like only a matter of time before Berchtold had the information about who, if anyone in Serbia, had trained the assassins. There was yet more encouraging news to come for Berchtold, because on Thursday the 2nd of July, he was informed that Germany's ambassador, Heinrich Czertsky, had come around to the idea that Germany should support Austria against Serbia. Originally, the German ambassador had seemed cool with regards to the idea, and had urged caution. However, after he had been rebuked by the Kaiser that day, while the Kaiser had been upset over the loss of his friend, Chersky then changed his tune. Berchtold, of course, did not know that the Kaiser had rebuked his German ambassador. All he knew was that once Chersky had opposed action, and now he seemed receptive to the idea. Above all, though, Chersky had told Berchtold that whatever action Austria took must be bold and decisive, since it had to persuade policymakers in Berlin that Austria was not going to back down. Incidentally, this was exactly what Berchtold wanted to do. He wanted to develop a harsh response to Serbia, especially with this news of German support. However, on Thursday the 2nd of July, the Austrian Emperor Franz Josef had also met with the German ambassador, and seems to have gotten cold feet, and believed that Austria policy may be moving too fast. Josef wanted Berchtold to consider all his options, and in particular, the Emperor worried about what effect Stefan Tisa would have if the Hungarian minister-president remained opposed to a tough response. Berchtold thus had to weigh his options that Friday on the 3rd of July, on the day that Franz Ferdinand was being buried. He was aware of Tisa's peace memo we encountered before, which had advocated co-opting Bulgaria, Romania and the Ottomans into the Triple Alliance, and by urging a more active German policy in the Balkans as well as generally closer Balkan cooperation with Germany. Berchtold suspected that this memo may have been the results of Tisa's admiration for Germany, but he also believed that if he presented this idea to Berlin, then it would merely expose Austria as unable to act by itself. Certainly, it would not be the bold and decisive action that Chertsky had advised Berchtold to take. If anything, it would reinforce Austrian timidity in the minds of statesmen at Berlin. So Berchtold tried to use the peace memo for his own devices. He wrote a note and attached it to the memo, informing whatever German eyes that read it that the peace memo had existed before Sarajevo had taken place, and that since that time Austria had drawn up the following adjustments. 
These adjustments included assurance to the Germans that the assassination was wanton proof that the gulf between the monarchy and Serbia was beyond bridging over. Berchtold also added that Austria must tear asunder with a determined hand the threads which its enemies are weaving into a net over its head. Berchtold then composed a letter that Franz Josef was to sign, which was to be presented to Wilhelm II personally. Within this letter were further assurances that fingered Serb intrigue as responsible for the Sarajevo incident, informing the German Kaiser that the source of criminal agitation in Belgrade lives on unpunished. Berchtold also made sure to reference the monarchical principle, which was said to be the chief concern of European absolutist monarchs, including Russia's Tsar. Berchtold noted that the assassination meant that the peace policy of all European monarchs are threatened. Such danger, Berchtold concluded, would only pass when Serbia is eliminated as a political power factor in the Balkans. While he was careful not to simply state war or even mention the word in the letter, the reference to destroying Serbia would have realistically conferred little else, and was surely designed to ensure that Germany's sovereign was certain of harsh Austrian action. But how was Berchtold to get the dispatch to Berlin? He could send a courier, but when it reached Berlin he wanted someone similar in thinking to him to be there to present it, so as to confer to the Germans that Austria did mean business. Alternatively, he could travel to Berlin himself and deliver the note in person. Such a move was guaranteed to illustrate its importance to the Germans. Yet it may have overemphasized it to the point that word would have gotten out to Stefan Tisa and perhaps others of his actions. It was clear to Berchtold that if he wanted to operate effectively, he had to do so behind Tisa's back, at least for now. Until it was clear that Germany understood the Austrian position, and until it was thus in concrete that Germany would stand by Austria, Berchtold simply did not want Tisa to get in the way and slow the whole process further. Austria had already lost valuable time, Berchtold reasoned, while it justified itself to the Hungarian minister-president. Any further delays may dampen the impact of Austrian determination and leave Germany in doubt as to Austrian conviction. But who could Berchtold send? It was then that the idea of sending Hoyos to Berlin occurred to him. Hoyos was similarly disposed to gaining German aid and launching a war of reprisal against Serbia. He could be trusted to energetically complete his task and to do so propelled with the same goals as Berchtold. Hoyos had made himself known to the Germans in times before, and his conversation with Victor Naumann on the 1st of July proved that the Germans respected his opinions and took his point of view seriously. So Alexander Hoyos was packed on a train to Berlin on Saturday the 4th of July, but before he left, Berchtold furnished him with reinforced instructions, telling him that he was to explain to the Austrian ambassador in Berlin that, we believe the moment has come for a final reckoning with Serbia. We must obtain for the government in Belgrade specific guarantees for the future, the refusal of which will result in military action. Hoyos was to try to get the Austrian ambassador, a veteran statesman by the name of Ladislaus Zodjani, to see if such a course of action would be supported by official circles in Berlin. In other words, Hoyos would be armed with his own instructions, and he was to attempt to persuade first the Austrian ambassador of the need to act, and then see if the Germans would support a harsher line against Serbia in the aftermath of Sarajevo. That Saturday night, on the 4th of July, Hoyos boarded the train to Berlin, much to the ignorance of Stefan Tisa, which was exactly how Berchtold wanted it.
opinions regarding the assassination had notably crystallised within the course of the Triple Entente of Britain, France and Russia. A number of assumptions had culminated in Russia following the assassination, which sought apparently to downplay its significance, and more importantly to nullify the rumour of Serbian involvement. It started with the character of Franz Ferdinand himself, who Russian policymakers upheld to be an enemy of Slavs and Russia, and who had been killed as a result of disaffected elements striking back at him within his own fractured empire. This went along with the Russian view that Ferdinand was head of the Austrian War Party, and that he had wanted to annex the Bosnian region in the first place, and thereafter crush Serbia in a war of expansion. Much emphasis was placed on Ferdinand's unpopularity so as to present the event as outside of foreign responsibility, and simply the result of a domestic protest against their hated heir. This assertion led to further assumptions that Serbia could thus not possibly have been involved. As late as the 13th of July, the Serbian minister in Berlin was informing his brethren back home that the Russian ambassador in Berlin had been furnished with the view that Serbian involvement was not responsible for the death of Franz Ferdinand. The furnishing had come directly from St. Petersburg itself, and they sought to create the counter-argument to Vienna's that, far from seeking retribution for the act, Austria had been a victim of its own fragile domestic policies, and now it was trying to blame Serbia for it. In addition, on Wednesday the 1st of July, the Russian ambassador to Austria upheld that the German ambassador to Vienna, Heinrich Chersky, was trying his best to exploit the sad event of Ferdinand's death. This despite the fact that by the 1st of July, Chertsky was still urging caution, since he had not yet been rebuked by Wilhelm II. Meanwhile, the Russian minister to Serbia, Nikolai Hartwig, unsurprisingly echoed the view that Austria was creating the issue of Serbian compliance for its own convenience. Such an accusation was important, because it illustrated the belief that Austria was in fact willing to lie, so as to give it an excuse to launch a predatory war against the Serbs. The Austrians, Russia's Serb statesmen upheld, were supported in this action by Germany, who wished to launch their preventative war before the Franco-Russian Entente grew too strong. Thus, Russia was content to argue that Vienna had no grounds for interference in Serbia, and that whoever had been responsible for the attacks, Austria could not move against the entire Serbian country just because immature anarchists, Serbia was not mentioned, had killed their heir. It would be wrong to blame an entire race for the actions of individuals. Further, the Russian ambassador to Vienna explained to a British colleague, it would be unfair to even accuse Serbia of having indirectly favoured by her antipathy the plot to which the Archduke fell victim. Thus, not only did Russian statesmen not want Austria to hold Serbia responsible, they also wanted to remove the idea that the Serbs favoured Austrian misfortune. When the Austrian ambassador to Russia noted that his government might demand the support of the Serbian government in an investigation within Serbia of the latest assassination, the Russian foreign minister, Sergei Sazonov, warned the diplomat that Austria should drop this idea, lest they set foot along a dangerous path. The importance attached to the way in which Russia presented the events are clear when one considers that the possibility of widening the war across Europe would fall largely at Russia's feet since only she could claim an interest in the region on a level that would justify intervention. The way Russia's Entente colleagues were furnished with the Russian perspective was designed to remove Serbian compliance from the event in Sarajevo, 
so that Vienna would be presented as solely responsible for launching any forms of aggression against Serbia, and so that Austria-Hungary would look just like the major disturber of the peace. The French president, Raymond Poincaré, took Russian perspectives at face value, and declined to even investigate the matter further, stating categorically that evidence of Serbian activity in the Sarajevo killings did not exist. The Austrian ambassador to Paris was confronted with an interesting comparison of the murder of French President Sedi Carnot in 1894 by an Italian anarchist. Though on paper it appeared as though such a comparison was in line with what happened at Sarajevo, Poincaré in this case was seeking to present the event of June 28th as one which, like that of 1894, had been the work of a single, anarchical individual who answered to no organisation but his own sense of mission. In short, even Paris seemed to have adopted the Russian view, that the man responsible, whoever he was, could not be used as the Austrian cause for war, since, even if he hadn't acted alone, he didn't represent any state entirely, and certainly he didn't represent Serbia. In vain did the Austrian ambassador remind the French president that the assassination of Carnot in 1894 Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Bore no relation to any anti-French agitation in Italy, whereas one must now admit that in Serbia they have been agitating against the monarchy for years using every permitted and illicit means. British Foreign Secretary Edward Grey remained as occupied by the Irish crisis as the rest of his countrymen, but he did advise the Russian ambassador to London, Account Beckendorf, on the 3rd of July, to make sure of Serbian guilt or innocence either way, since in the event of war in the Balkans it would make all the difference to the British public whether Serbia was the victim or the instigator. When Beckendorf protested that he didn't see the grounds on which such a demarche against Serbia could be founded, Gray later remembered that he replied, I said I did not know what was contemplated. I could only suppose that some discovery made during the trial of those implicated in the murder of the Archduke 
for instance, that the bombs had been obtained in Belgrade, might, in the eyes of the Austrian government, be foundation for a charge of negligence against the Serbian government. But this was only imagination and guess on my part. By downplaying Serb compliance and emphasising the necessity of defending Serbia in the event of an Austrian attack, the Russian ambassador to Vienna confessed to British ambassador of that country that he didn't think Austria would be foolish enough to allow itself to be rushed into war, since it would result in a general war as Russia scrambled to support Serbia. Of that, the Russian diplomat insisted, there could be no question, a Serbian war meant general European war. Within a few days then, Russian statesmen had crafted their own interpretation of events, and had largely persuaded their Entente colleagues to believe it. This did not necessarily mean that Russia was attempting to cover up the event and blame Austria for it, but it may have suggested the distrust of Vienna, as well as the volatile nature of the Balkans and the relationship Serbia had with Russia that persuaded Russian statesmen that Vienna would use any excuse possible. Certainly it did not bode well for Vienna that, regardless of Russian sincerity or honesty in the days following their efforts, Russia's fellow Entente members were so taken in by Russia's account of events and less than impressed with Austria's attempts to point the finger in the right direction. Russian statesmen had crafted an alternative picture of Franz Ferdinand too. He was the belligerent statesman who was loathed by his own people and who had flaunted his pomposity in Bosnia where he had been finally taken out. Ferdinand was killed, this Russian account portrays, by a desperate gunman in a hit that was a long time coming, and which Vienna sought to use, desperate now in its own grief, to justify action against its hated Balkan neighbour Serbia, who just wanted to remain at peace and uphold its sovereignty. The reinforcement of such views have held in many sections of opinion today. Few know, unless they've done their research, the nature of Ferdinand's character or that initial Austrian requests on Serbia to investigate its own organisations and punish those responsible, appear far more reasonable than the Habsburg thirst for war and conquest, conquest which, as Austrian Foreign Minister Berchtold well understood, would be wholly opposed by Austria-Hungary's other element, the Hungarian Minister-President, Tisa, which explains the secrecy involved in sending Count Hoyos to Berlin in the first place. When Hoyos arrived on Sunday morning, the 5th of July, he went straight to the Austrian embassy, where he briefed the ambassador, Zajini, on the nature of his visit and what was expected of him by Berchtold. Zajini seems to have been persuaded by Hoyos' arguments, and that afternoon a conveniently scheduled lunch between himself and the Kaiser would give the two the perfect chance to communicate the Austrian plans in depth. His mission, thus a relative success, Hoyos wandered over to the German Foreign Office to talk with his contacts there. Count Zogeny had in fact developed an important skill while he had been ambassador to Germany since 1894. He knew how to manipulate the Kaiser and use his passions and emotions for gain. In this case, he had to extract from Wilhelm a promise of German understanding and a concrete guarantee of German aid in the event of a war with Serbia. This would be essential giving the atmosphere of hostility to Vienna's plans in Russia, and the prevailing sense among the Triple Entente that the crisis was largely of Austria's own making. Zogeny required promises of solidarity, and he gently pressed Wilhelm over lunch as to what degree the Emperor would support Austrian interests. Initially, Wilhelm said he would have to confer with his Chancellor Bethmann Hallweg, 
but he pressed him again over coffee and cake, and such ingredients proved to make all the difference to the Kaiser's outlook. When I again called attention to the seriousness of the situation, Sajini reported that day to Vienna, the Kaiser authorised me to inform our gracious majesty that we might, in this case as in all others, rely upon Germany's full support. Wilhelm insisted once more that he had to speak with his Chancellor, but said that he was confident Holweg would see things as he did. Such replies did give Zogeny reasons to be positive, but before he left, Wilhelm filled him with a further piece of confidential advice, as the Austrian ambassador to Germany later reported. It was Wilhelm's opinion that our action against Serbia must not be delayed. Russia's attitude would no doubt be hostile, but for this, he had been for years prepared, and should a war between Austria and Russia be unavoidable, we might be convinced that Germany, our old faithful ally, would stand at our side. Russia at the present time was in no way prepared for war, and would think twice before it appealed to arms. These words, coming from the mouth of the Kaiser himself, according to Zogeny, appeared to confirm German support at last. Zogeny returned to the Austrian embassy to report back to Berchtold what had been said that afternoon, with the understanding that he would return tomorrow, on Monday the 6th of July, to finalise the Austro-German response. Berchtold would thus have his oral approval of Austrian war aims, which would prove essential for convincing Stefan Tisa that Germany would not abandon the Habsburgs, and that Russia may very well stand aside as Serbia was defeated. That evening, on Sunday the 5th of July, Wilhelm called his major officials to a meeting. Germany's heavy hitters were all present, including its Chancellor Bethmann Hallweg, who had been good friends with the late Archduke. No precise record exists of what was said at the meeting of July 5th between the German VIPs and their Emperor, but analysis of the diaries of those present paints an interesting picture. One general wrote that his understanding of the note that had been adapted by Berchtold, and of the letter signed by Franz Josef, was that The Austrians are getting ready for war with Serbia, and want to be sure of Germany. This most present agreed to, as well as to the assertion that The sooner the Austrians make their move, the better. Most notable was this general's insistence that Russia would not aid Serbia, and since no military danger existed, the Kaiser could go on his cruise up the Baltic as usual. The next day, on Monday the 6th of July, in a continuation of their attempt to wrest a concrete reply out of the German government, Zogeny and Hoyos met with Bethmann Holwig, as well as Bethmann's undersecretary, Arthur Zimmermann. The day before, when Hoyos had gone to visit his contacts in the German Foreign Office, he had in fact had a long conversation about the political situation with Zimmermann, who was his equal in terms of diplomatic rank. Within their conversation, both asserted their stance, with Hoyos informing Zimmermann that Austria was considering a surprise attack on Serbia without preliminary preparation, which would lead to a partition of our territories among Austria-Hungary, Bulgaria and Albania. Hoyos claimed that Zimmermann merely smiled at this last suggestion, and offered no objections. When leaving that evening, on Sunday, for the Austrian embassy, Hoyos told his friend, as if in triumph, You could not have believed that Austria would quietly accept the murder of the heir apparent and do nothing about it. Zimmermann, revealingly, summed up the feelings of the German war party when he replied, No, but we were a little afraid that you might. However, that had been a discussion among subordinates to leading state diplomats, 
One could even call it a conversation among like-minded friends. So events on the next day, Monday the 6th of July, were likely to be different since the Chancellor and the Austrian Ambassador to Berlin were now present. The Kaiser had left that morning on 9.15am for his cruise up the Baltic, but not before assuring his generals that Russia and France were not prepared and therefore would not risk war. He also believed wholeheartedly that the Tsar would not intervene, since to do so would suggest Russian support for regicide. In the autocratic Russia, where the Tsar reigned supreme, it would surely be anathema to support a power with links to the killing of another autocrat. It may even give Russian citizens pause to consider the position of their Tsar even more than they had done. Thus, Wilhelm was invested with the impression that, he did not think Russia would intervene, particularly in light of the cause, regicide, the Tsar will hardly ever decide to do so. His Majesty therefore regards the affair, in the first instance, as a purely Balkan concern. Wilhelm did not even mention England, and felt content to leave the rest of the negotiating to his subordinates, due to meet that day with the Austrian ambassador and his undersecretary. When the meeting on Monday the 6th of July did take place, the result was the infamous blank check. Though Hoyos and his friend Zimmermann could not be so blunt with their superiors present, they were combined, able to convince the German Chancellor that Austria was serious. We have only Zogeny's report on what was said during the meeting, and if it is accurate, it suggests a dramatic shift in German policy. Zogeny's report, back to Berchtold in Vienna, reads as follows. In the matter of our relationship with Serbia, he said that it was the view of the German government that we must judge what ought to be done to sort out this relationship. Whatever our decision turned out to be, we could be confident that Germany as our ally and a friend of the monarchy would stand behind us. In the further course of the conversation, I gathered that both the Chancellor and his Imperial Master view an immediate intervention by us against Serbia as the best and most useful solution of our problems in the Balkans. From an international standpoint, he views the present moment as more favourable than a later one. That night, on Monday the 6th of July, Hoyas returned to Vienna, and Bethman Hallweg returned to his estate, where he had been on leave following the death of his wife in May. With the departing of the Kaiser that morning, it seemed as though Austria's German ally felt confident in Vienna's ability to pursue its own course, and that following the new guarantee, it expected such a course to result in Austrian satisfaction soon. From such meetings and private conversations was the blank check metaphor born. Later historians would lambast Germany for furnishing Austria with the confidence and impetus to act harshly against Serbia. However, on the morning of Monday the 6th of July, German statesmen upheld that Austria was well within its rights to act against Serbia. Following the events at Sarajevo, and did not believe, as the record shows, in Russian threats to get involved in the result. What certainly is not true is the accusation that Germany forced Austria into war by deliberate misinterpretation of its statements and requests. The entire purpose of the Hoyas mission had been to seek German support within such Austrian military confrontation. Though Berchtold's memo that Hoyas had been carrying did not actually mention war, a fact that amusingly confused some German statesmen during the debating of the contents of Berchtold's note on Sunday the 5th of July, those at the top level of German government understood that though they danced around using the word, war would be the only means to achieve what was stated in the letter, and note that Hoyos brought to Berlin. 
How else, other than war, was Austria to ensure that Serbia was eliminated as a power factor within the Balkans? Though it granted Austria support, it did not grant Austria support to launch a European war. Repeated assertions that Russia would not intervene were wrapped up in the belief that Russia was not yet ready for war, and that it would be far more likely to act in two or three years' time when it had the resources and military infrastructure in place to do so. Wilhelm asserted this constantly. The very fact that he left for a cruise illustrates the prevailing mood in Berlin that Russia would not be a danger. Germany did not undertake military preparations, and also did insist that the conflict would remain a Balkan issue. Germany may have felt confident enough to not need to make such preparations, or they may have felt as though Russia was not yet strong enough to combat the existing German readiness. But whatever the German stance on the 5th of July, it stands to reason that if Germany had intended to use the event for a preventative war, then the Kaiser would have stayed in Berlin, military preparations would have begun, and their ally would have been updated that such contingencies were in place. Successive historians often point to the German willingness and desire to launch preventative war, without noting the additional fact that if Germany could have gotten what it wanted for its ally without war with Russia, then it would have done so. Getting what you want without having to make much effort had been a style crystallised by previous European actions. Why would Germany seek to launch war on July the 5th, when it was expected Austria would gain satisfaction without it? From the German point of view, what was more likely? That Russia would abstain from intervening and leave Serbia and Austria to sort out their dispute with diplomatic assistance, perhaps with the diplomatic aid of further powers? Or that Russia would intervene militarily against the Tsar's monarchical principle awareness before Russian rearmament had been completed, and in violation of Austria's right to seek satisfaction in its Serbian dispute. This while evidence was beginning to emerge of Serbian complicity, and the possibility that Gavrilo Princip had acted solely under his own motivations was looking more remote. There was the additional link in German reasoning, echoed by Austrian planners, that if the event brought about Russian intervention, then it would be certain that Russia wanted war. Though a contradiction, German planners were prepared to admit that they were wrong, to the extent that if Russia did move against Austria, then Germany would not back down, and would instead further escalate the situation. No war was preferable, because it meant that Austria could get Serbian satisfaction easily. But if war did come, courtesy of Russian intervention, and a refusal to back down, then it was better now to fight this preventive war before Russia had the chance to get even stronger. In conclusion, German planners right down to its Kaiser didn't want or expect war. But if war seemed imminent and Russia did not back down, then Germany was determined to not back down either. This final resilient stance was not even expected to come to pass, since it was seen as so unlikely that Russia would escalate the situation, considering the fact that Germany believed Austria had perfectly reasonable grounds for issuing an ultimatum to Serbia, given the circumstances. It cannot be understated the fact that German theorists believed the monarchical principle would prevent Russian action. The monarchical principle was essentially the old autocratic order, and by coming out in support of Serb regicides, it would call into question the very position of the Tsar. Obviously, the Tsar could not afford to jeopardise his position, 
Previous unrest in the country had been troubling enough for the Russian Romanovs. But the Austro-German planners placed far too much hope on this idea of preventing Russian action. Because the Central Powers could not imagine the Tsar coming out in favour of the regicidal Serbs, who had, don't forget, killed their old royal family off in 1903, it became easier to overstate the other obstacles that seemed guaranteed to result in Russian inaction. Added to this fact was the experiences of the previous years, where Russia had not intervened in the Balkan Wars and the Russian Council of Ministers had enjoyed a balance of pro-war and pro-peace ministers that had only recently, unbeknownst to Germany, been altered in favour of the pro-war party within it. It was thus Austro-German misunderstanding and ignorance of the situation, rather than the vindictiveness or malicious planning of the Central Powers, that caught both Austria and its German guarantor off guard, as well as making infamous the issuing of the blank check to Austria, an act which, at the time, was meant as a reinforcement of German support and a reassurance to those in favour of conflict in Vienna, but which would soon be added to the bank of other German documents as the smoking gun, by which the war guilt of the German Empire could be established. It is only by close analysis of these events on a day-by-day basis that the truth becomes more apparent. And even then, it is only through recent study and with the release of new documents that such study becomes possible. Germany, contrary to the war guilt clause of the Treaty of Versailles, did not issue the blank check to prod Austria in the direction of war. It gave the promise to its ally that it would stand by it on the grounds that, in the event of apparent Russian non-intervention and legitimate Austrian grievances over Serb terrorism, such actions were only fair by the circumstances of the time. If anything, Austro-German planners can be blamed for underestimating their Russian foe's determination and misunderstanding the fact that the international perception of the Austrian moves painted Austria as a definitive bad guy at the time, thanks mostly to Russian manipulation of events, as we have seen. However, it was the intransigence of both sides that ensured the potential for conflict did not end with the issuing of the blank check. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 